Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Before we get started, I wanted to thank my previous guest, Andreas Kranzler. Um, he had some really interesting things to say about uh, being a, a Christian in Europe and what that looks like, and uh, talking about a, a very interesting career so far. Um, in the meantime, uh, I wanted to remind everybody once again that my documentary, Real Redemption, The Rise of Christian Cinema, is available at Faith Life TV. And they offer a two-week uh, free trial of the subscription, so you can uh, subscribe and check out the movie. And then I would honestly suggest sticking around and, and watching some of their other stuff. They do have a lot of really interesting, informative uh, documentaries on there, so uh, do check that out. I would also suggest you go to morethanonelesson.com and check out a couple of new reviews by Bob Connolly, including Bill and Ted Face the Music, so you can read his, his opinion about that film. Uh, I hope everybody is doing well these days in the midst of the quarantine and in the midst of pretty rough election cycle and all kinds of riots and, and craziness happening all over the place. I hope you're doing well. It's very easy um, given these circumstances to be stressed, to be angry, to be sad. Um, and, uh, and I hope that you're doing okay. So today we are going to be talking about words on bathroom walls directed by Thor Freudenthal, which is a fun name. It was based on the novel by Julia Walton and it stars Charlie Plummer, Molly Parker, Walton Goggins, Andy Garcia, and a number of others. Um, so I don't actually know what the situation is with this movie. Um, it, it is available in theaters. I don't remember if it's available uh, to watch digitally. So if you're hearing this, you might not actually get a chance to see this film. But uh, so knowing that people aren't really, not everyone has a chance to see it, um, I'm going to refrain from spoilers. And I'm just going to talk about the film in general because um, it really impacted me. Uh, I wrote a review over at BattleshipPretension.com. You can go and read read it there. But um, I was really surprised by this film. I knew that it was uh, based on uh, like a, a YA novel. And I knew that it dealt with mental illness. And I really was not expecting much from that. When you combine those two, I felt like it's it was a film that was going to soft pedal mental illness and turn it into something kind of uh, cute or quirky. Uh, that's something that happens a lot. We've talked about some movies on this podcast. I remember many years ago, we talked about uh, the Jodie Foster film, The Beaver, um, which depicted 
a few things, including uh, Mel Gibson uh, playing a character who's very depressed and the way he chooses, the way he chose to play him is just kind of a, a droopy kind of sad sack uh, kind of guy. And it just felt like an oversimplification of depression and what depression looks like. Um, so imagine my surprise when this is uh, this movie chose to depict mental illness in a way that is in many ways uh, a little bit oversimplified, but the implications and the emotional impact of it really is not. Um, it stars Charlie Plummer as a character named Adam, who is in high school, and he has been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And the way that that manifests itself is uh, he sees things that aren't there and he hears things that aren't there. And the things that he sees can be boiled down primarily to three characters. There's Joaquin, who is a, a good-looking 20-something who is shirtless, uh, always in a robe, and is kind of a uh, sort of a stereotypical horn dog type that you would find in um, you know, a National Lampoon's movie. Um, there's Rebecca played by Anna Sophia Robb, who is sort of this beautiful hippy dippy kind of, uh, girl. And then there is uh, a character I think simply referred to as the bodyguard who, uh, wears a tracksuit and wields a baseball bat. And each, each of these three, uh, hallucinations serve a different purpose in Adam's life. Uh, Rebecca is met, is there to play into his emotions and his sense of romance and his desire for love. Uh, Joaquin is the thing is like always encouraging him to be more bold, more confident. Um, and then the bodyguard is there, uh, when his defenses go up and when he feels like he needs to worry about, uh, the world outside. And so these three hallucinations are fairly harmless in many ways. Um, Adam seems to have, seems to have made some kind of peace with them being in his life. But then there's this fourth uh, hallucination, which is not may, which is not humanoid at all. Instead, it is a black uh, gaseous uh, substance that pours in from the next room and uh, has a voice, a deep, echoing voice that says all of the worst things it's the thing that pushes adam to be suspicious of other people it's the thing that tells adam that he is worthless and it's the thing that pushes him to um to extreme actions so from from the standpoint of cinematic uh mental illness i would say that words on bathroom walls is fairly easily digestible but that's, to me, that's okay, um, because this film is aimed at a younger crowd. And, you know, they may not be ready to deal with the implications of Jeff Nichols' Take Shelter or David Cronenberg's Spider, which I think uh, those films are, are the gold standard in depicting mental illness um, and visualizing mental illness. Um, here, uh, we really focus in on Adam and just him really trying to live with this disease. And I think Charlie Plummer does a really good job. He's uh, a younger guy who's been in a few noted movies. He was in um, uh, All the Money in the World and Lean on Pete and a number of other things. And there's just a real, probably because he's kind of a, a skinnier guy, but also he 
he just has a real vulnerability to the way that he uh, carries himself, to the way he he looks around and and is constantly trying to assess uh, the situation because his schizophrenia has caused him to get into trouble at one high school, and so his uh, mother has taken him and put him into uh, a Catholic school, and so he is trying to keep his illness. Uh, secret so that people don't uh, treat him as some kind of freak. Uh, but the thing is, even though he is keeping it secret, you you pay attention. You you notice that he's constantly paying attention to the world around him, even if he's if if the the hallucinations are not there at any given point. Um, the way he is, the way he looks at things, and also the way he carries himself, you can tell he's being tremendously careful uh, because. You never quite know what what might trigger uh, a hallucination, uh, whether it be one of the three characters that I've been talking about or the 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 darker uh, uh, the darker images as well. So uh, as he goes to this new school, um, the the head again, a Catholic school, the head nun. There's probably a name for <laughs> for her title played by the always reliable Beth Grant. Um, playing a character that is very Beth Grant-esque. Um, she is ha- is happy to have him, but she's also very cautious about his, uh, his mental illness. She sees it as something that needs to be managed, something that needs to be monitored, and something that makes him a problem as though it were a behavioral issue, as though he were just a troublemaker. And when we see the way she reacts uh, to him, we get a, a really strong sense of what it is like to live with uh, a mental illness, because especially I'd say in a in a religious community. Um, but I'll get to that more in, in a moment. Um, and then he uh, Adam gets to uh, he he meets this uh, young woman and and uh, starts to fall in love with her and. That goes. That kind of follows the standard young adult fiction um, path, but at the core of of all of this is this uh, concern that eventually his schizophrenia will overtake him, and that causes him to kind of pull away from people. It pull he pulls away from his his mom, played by Molly Parker. Uh, she is recently married to uh somebody that is not adam's dad played by walton goggins um and there's there's a really uh a really interesting dynamic between him and walton goggins and there's a moment that i won't spoil uh because it's so effective and it's the kind of thing that that could be seen as as kind of cheesy the way it plays out but uh but i think uh, charlie Plummer and walton goggins do a really wonderful job uh, and then there is the character of the of Father Patrick, who's like the the head priest at this Catholic school, played by Andy Garcia. Um, I've liked Andy Garcia for pretty much his entire career, but it's interesting to see, as often happens, because he was like you know a, an attractive young guy who got lead roles, kind of a smoldering type. Uh, but then as he got older, he started playing more character roles. Like if you look at um, Ocean's Eleven or Confidence. Uh, and then something like this, uh, he's really he's really found a, a solid career playing uh, supporting roles that are really interesting and add color or in this case add thematic depth um, because the the 
priest here, Father Patrick, he does seem like he really cares about Adam, but he doesn't fully understand what Adam is dealing with because Adam doesn't tell him. He doesn't tell him that he has schizophrenia. And so uh, Father Patrick, even though he's a character we like and we respect, he will often default to uh, sort of cliches and he'll quote the Bible. Not that there's anything wrong with quoting the Bible, but he'll do it in kind of a haphazard way. Um, because it has, because it has always worked. Uh, he admits this later. Um, but even though Adam says that he is not, that he may not actually believe in God, he still keeps going to father Patrick because, um, he will actually listen to him and then dispense advice, even though, uh, that advice is not fully comprehending Adam's full situation. So, uh, going back to the Beth, the Beth Grant character, the, the head nun, again, there's gotta be a, a better name for that. Um, so w- one thing that I've talked about on this show many times because of my own situation, my own, uh, struggles with depression and all that, um, is the way the church deals with, uh, mental illness. And this is a, this is something that the film talks about is it's a, it's different than other kinds of illnesses. It's the same in some ways, but it's definitely treated differently because if I break my leg, then the only thing impacted is my leg. My personality doesn't change, but if I am dealing with depression or anxiety or certainly something like schizophrenia, it will affect my personality and it could change who I am, maybe not completely, but enough that it could actually alienate people. And they decide, oh, that guy's just being a jerk. And it's hard to see past the the illness to the person that is underneath, especially when, if that person is being um, sort of antagonistic to you. And that's something that, that the film talks about, is being able to see past the disease. Um, to take the disease into account when regarding somebody who is afflicted. And it's something that the Beth Grant character does not do. She treats um, Adam as though he is just inherently a problem that needs to be dealt with um, or at least uh, downplayed. And uh, that I think is, is one of the things that I really appreciate about this film. It reminded me in many ways of the film uh, Love, Simon which is another uh, YA adaptation, and it's about a young man in high school who is gay. And that is a film that, you know, I, I've seen a number of films in which characters are, are dealing with their sexuality. And unsurprisingly, uh, because of the audience that it's for, Love, Simon is is kind of facile at times. It doesn't really hit particularly hard, but, uh, you know, we are dealing with a film that is aimed at a younger demographic, not to suggest that high schoolers can't deal with uh, the difficulty of sexuality or the difficulty of mental illness, but by making it sort of treating this as a sort of gateway into a deeper conversation about mental illness. I think, um, I think words on bathroom walls works very, very well. Um, So one of the things that really, struck me about the movie is its willingness to go into pretty disturbing places. There's a a moment where 
Adam has a bit of a breakdown and is committed to a, a hospital and he is, his arms are restrained and he is freaking out and he just does not seem like the person that his girlfriend, that his mom, he doesn't seem like the person that they know and their heart, uh, is, their hearts are breaking for him even as he is, uh, yelling at them and, and freaking out. And that is, that's a, it's a very disturbing scene, a very disturbing image and one that is tremendously sad and also one that deals with the, the reality of mental illness, which as I said before, it changes your personality and it's something that drives people away. Um, that is something that, that the, the film talks about is that there's a reason that so many, uh, people with schizophrenia or really any other kind of mental illness, why they often wind up homeless is because they drive people away and people don't know how to look past that. Um, and so I really, I, I appreciate the film's commitment to really educating the audience, sometimes more overt, sometimes more covert, but really educating the audience about what it is to live with uh, a mental, mental illness of some kind. And you know, in, in, uh, Christian circles, as I was saying earlier, uh, it appears mental illness often f uh, appears to be something that is just purely a function of personality, attitude, and behavior. Um, and so there is a tendency to, uh, want to quote unquote, treat it purely with prayer or, um, counseling, don't get me wrong, counseling and therapy is very important. Uh, but there's a, there's a, a tendency to downplay the importance of medication and really just not taking it seriously as an illness. Um, it's seen as, as a spiritual affliction. And I think that that does not really do justice to what mental illness actually is. And, uh, we'll be talking more about that later, but, um, uh, the companion film for Words on Bathroom Walls is Ron Howard's A Beautiful Mind, which came out in 2001. Uh, it is It was a very successful film that year, and it did very well at the Oscars. It won Best Picture, Director, Adapted Screenplay, and Supporting Actress for Jennifer Connelly. And uh, it tells the true story of John Nash, who was a brilliant uh, mathematician who also dealt with schizophrenia and also dealt with... Um, hallucinations and and unlike the beginning of words on bathroom walls this is a situation where the character does not realize they are hallucinations until about halfway through the film if not maybe even a little bit later up until then his college roommate and the government agent who um who recruits him to work on codes for the fbi or the cia um those are just characters and those are just people in his life only for him to discover later that no they don't exist and there's a really wonderful quote in the film uh, where a, a doctor that is that is treating John Nash, he says, imagine if you suddenly learn that the people, the places, the moments most important to you were not gone, not dead, but worse, had never been. What kind of hell would that be? And, you know, there was at the time that I saw A Beautiful Mind, I remember being frustrated that it sort of like words on bathroom walls that it dealt with mental illness in such a clear-cut way that John Nash, once he realizes what the hallucinations are, he just gives them a place and then he goes on with his life. And I remember being frustrated that the film doesn't deal with sort of the ugliness of um, 
of mental illness. Uh, but you know what? In retrospect, when I think back on the movie, as I always do with a Ron Howard film, I realize just how solidly made it is, how wonderfully acted it is. Uh, Russell Crowe plays John Nash. Um, and just it's it's just a sturdy that's the word that i often come back to solid or sturdy it's just a film that really stands up to um to artistic scrutiny even if it does simplify the disease it should be noted that it's written by akiva goldsman who did win the oscar for best adapted screenplay uh but he's also the guy who wrote uh batman forever and decided that uh, the best way to write two-face uh who has a split personality um the best way to write him is that uh, he refers to himself as we instead of i and uh, that is pretty much the beginning and the end of uh, the split personality aspect of Two-Face and Batman Forever. So that is not a writer that I would really trust to capture the intricacies of any mental illness. But from a structural standpoint, the film works really well as a sort of thriller, um, which you then realize is not actually a thriller. That the thriller aspect is going on solely in John Nash's mind. Um, and that in actuality, we're dealing with a drama uh, and a relationship film because it's very much about him uh, falling in love with uh, this young woman and they get married and then she sticks with him through the difficulties of mental illness. Now, if you want to look at the actual true story, you will see that uh, it does deviate from the film quite a bit. Um, you know, maybe not quite a bit, but in some key moments. But uh, but I'm I'm okay with a film. Uh, changing the the story a little bit that's that's fine with me um and yeah as as uh, as time has gone on um it's a film that again i didn't really care for at the time but uh it has it has become a better movie in my mind uh and maybe it's because i haven't seen it in a while maybe if i watch it next time i'll, I'll roll my eyes at it but uh, i think i think back on it actually fairly fondly and uh, obviously because of the way that we're the way that the the hallucinations are depicted um i couldn't help but think of words on bathroom walls as being sort of a beautiful mind junior and um and yeah i i i appreciate both of these films because they are mainstream movies that are attempting to depict something that is very difficult to depict and even harder to understand um there are plenty of independent movies that have done it um and i think maybe do it better but when you're dealing with a young audience or a mainstream audience, you have to maybe speak in, in broader terms. And frankly, I just appreciate both films attempt to convey what this actually is. And so <clears throat> I wanted to use this opportunity to talk about mental illness in general, as I know, I've as you know, I've talked about it here before, um, but it's definitely on my mind, especially uh, during the quarantine where there's been an uptick in depression. I think I read somewhere the other day that there's like a shortage of antidepressants because so many people from being stuck at home or being in a bad economic situation that they're being diagnosed as clinically depressed and a lot more people being prescribed antidepressants. And so it just seemed like the kind of thing to to address during this time and because the film came out and I really uh, highly recommend it. So um, one of the things I wanted to talk about is the the stigma in the Christian community about mental illness and I think that that is uh, unfortunate. I think I think 
when somebody says that they have depression or that they're dealing with anxiety and then a, a fellow Christian says, oh, well, that's just something you need to pray away or uh, it could be demonic uh, oppression or whatever it is. And I'm not ruling out the concept of, of spiritual attack, but it could be a situation where something is being um, capitalized upon, but the thing is, is already there. Um, and I do think that there is in in the casual addressing of mental illness in the christian community i feel like at the core of that is a dismissal um a frustration with not being able to fully grasp what the mental illness is and what it's actually doing to the person that's afflicted with it and so because we don't understand what to do with it we can get frustrated and we can either say i don't know what to do help me figure out what to do to help you rather than say that we instead say what you're dealing with isn't actually real and so i don't i don't uh, so it's actually kind of okay that i don't know what to do about it and so i'm going to stop trying to do something about it and you just need to pray more um and that is and you certainly should not take mind-altering drugs uh absolutely not you're going to have to deal with this um, you know, by going to church more or talking to your pastor or whatever it is. And that, that attitude frustrates me. I also think it's an attitude that thankfully is starting to shift. Um, as is the case with a lot of things in the church where stuff that was previously taboo is now being talked about more openly. And one thing that I will say is there is a, a comedian named uh, Shonda Pierce who um you know she <laughs> she looks like your mom you know uh and she's got this thick southern accent and for the most part I, I find her comedy you know fine but one thing that i find fascinating about her is that she she talks a lot about her own struggles with depression and she finds funny ways to talk about it but she's also very honest about it and she talked and that she is a christian comedian she's talking to christian audiences and she is confronting them with what it is to to struggle with this and so i actually have a number of quotes by her including <laughs> including uh one that is literally a joke that addresses this idea of of um christians uh, trying to warn you away from antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication. Um, and by the way, I don't suggest that somebody take that casually. Obviously, you should talk to a doctor and, and find out which one works for you. Um, but she uh, she has a line where she says, if somebody if someone ever shames you about the medicine you take, tell them to take their glasses off and drive home. And I, I love that because it suggest it, it doesn't suggest it actually says, yes, uh, the same people that that would have you, you know, just grin and bear it through your mental illness uh, will absolutely take aspirin for a headache. They'll put they'll uh, wear glasses if they need uh, if they have eye trouble. Um, and so when it comes to mental illness, like that's the one thing there's like, no, 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 you just need to you just need to deal with it. But they would not say it with anything else that is a little bit more obviously physical um and so what i would say is if you are somebody who if you know someone who is dealing with depression or anxiety or maybe something a little bit more severe like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder um i'll just say that i know it's extremely difficult it can be very difficult to deal with somebody like that um especially because the the disease that they have is is 
telling them to push you away or telling them not to trust you. And it might lead to hostility and that can, it can be really hard to keep coming back over and over. Um, and admittedly you might need to take a break because people who deal with this, um, can be a lot to take. Um, but what I would encourage you to do is yes, take a break, but then check back in. Um, it, it takes a lot to, to deal with someone with mental illness and God bless anybody who is able to do that. Um, but I do have a couple of, uh, Bible verses here for you. Uh, Romans 12 verses 14 through 16, bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse rejoice with those who rejoice mourn with those who mourn live in harmony with one another do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position do not be conceited so i like this because you know it's it's talking about empathy and it's talking about really persevering uh, persevering in love for another person uh specifically the people that are difficult to love people that persecute you um and then dealing with people of a low position and uh one could say that someone who is in a position who is uh, afflicted with uh, a mental illness they could be seen as uh being of uh of low position and maybe even someone who who persecutes you now obviously i'm not saying put yourself in harm's way like you certainly don't want to get physically hurt um, and, and after a while, if, 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 uh, if your friend or relative is like insulting you or like really coming after you, like I said, you might need to, to take a break just for your own sanity, but I would, I would really encourage you not to give up on them because eventually, um, it, it might sink in. Um, similarly, first Peter three, eight says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another be compassionate and humble. And I know this is easier said than done. Um, I'm sure some of you may hear this and be thinking of your parent, a sibling, a friend, um, a spouse who is just extremely difficult to deal with because of, of their, their mental illness. And I'm not suggesting that it's easy, nor am I saying, Hey, you need to, you need to be better. Nothing like that. I'm not accusing you of being one of these other types of people who is, who is, um, dismissive of mental illness. Um, but I would just really encourage you to, to stick with it and, and show love for this person that is, is maybe even beyond you obviously pray for them, but also pray for yourself. Um, pray that you are able to, to have the strength to love somebody beyond what you thought possible. And then I also wanted to talk to those of you who might be dealing with a mental illness as, as I do. Um, I have a couple of quotes here, one by Chandra, uh, sorry, Shonda Pierce, uh, again. Um, she says, morning is absolutely my toughest time. You wake up and crack your eyes open, hoping, hoping that that dark thing is gone. And when you notice that it's there, you just feel so defeated. When you feel it back again, you question your faith. You keep searching to see if there's sin hidden down in your life somewhere that you forgot to mention. So God's just not going to, so God's just not going to take care of that one. You start making that list of defeat before your feet ever hit the floor. And then C.S. Lewis has a, a quote here where he says, Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain. It is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. 
it is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. So here you have, you know, a modern Christian comedian and this, uh, this, uh, brilliant Christian intellect saying essentially the same thing that like, there's, there is something particularly sad and difficult to deal with, uh, when you have that inner pain, that mental pain as CS Lewis talked about. And, uh, what I will say is, um, undoubtedly you may, you may be seeing a therapist and maybe taking, uh, meds and, and certainly praying about it. And maybe it gets better for a time, then it gets worse. Maybe it never really gets better and it just stays there. And that can be extremely frustrating. Um, second Corinthians 12, seven through 11 says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness uh, in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, one thing, on one hand, I, I love this passage because it talks about this idea that like there might be something in your life that just afflicts you. It could be a temptation. It could be a physical ailment. It could be, you know, as we're talking about, it could be a, a mental uh, or emotional uh, situation. Um, and I appreciate that the Bible is honest enough to say that, yes, uh, this might be with you your whole life. And when you ask God to take it from you, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, one of the things that I find frustrating about this passage is that I don't like the word sufficient because to me, it doesn't actually work. It seems a little bit clinical. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem compassionate. <laughs> it doesn't seem, um, very humane. Um, it's, it seems, you know, like my grace is sufficient for you. Um, and so I've really had to try and, and get past the word itself and just see that what God is saying is just keep relying on me. And I know that it's, it, I know that it's hard, but just keep relying on me and I might never deliver you from this but just keep relying on me. Keep talking to me and keep reading your Bible. Keep associating with other Christians, reminding yourself of the truth. Um, and maybe the, and maybe the thorn is there. This is not a thing I say lightly. Um, maybe the thorn is there to keep us from relying too much on ourselves. Um, that's just a suggestion. Um, I'm not saying that's always the case, but here God says, my power is made perfect in weakness and then Paul says, when I am weak, I am strong. And he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. So in the spirit of that, um, I wanted to talk about some of my own, uh, my own difficulties. Now, I've certainly talked about my depression on here before, but I have never gone completely uh, down, that, uh, down that path. So... Um, I'm going to do that here because one thing that really struck me about words on bathroom walls is that, and, and about a beautiful mind, but more, uh, more the, the, uh, 
primary film is that mental illness thrives on secrecy, on isolation, on loneliness, and it convinces you that nobody wants to hear your problems. And it convinces you that people will, will uh, distance themselves if you are completely vulnerable and you talk about something that they are not equipped to deal with. And so in the spirit of, of boasting in our weakness, um, I'm going to go ahead and talk about this. So um, you may have noticed, if you're a longtime fan of the show, that uh, there is a long gap starting in November of 2017 that lasted to March of 2018. And the reason for that gap is that in November of 2017, um, I tried to kill myself. And uh, the, the depression was a little bit too much. I was in a rough space all around. Um, it had been a very difficult year. Um, and frankly, my marriage was not going particularly well, mostly because I was not sharing anything with my wife. I was not telling her about the, the really dark stuff that I was thinking and feeling because my, my, what my mind was telling me was she has enough on her plate already. She doesn't need anything from you. In fact, you know, to, to tell her what you're thinking and feeling, uh, will only burden her and she will resent you. And she will be more inclined to get away from you. And so I didn't tell her anything. Uh, I told a couple friends how I was doing, but uh, I never told the fullest uh, extent of things. And so finally, after, uh, after an argument that she and I had, uh, I, I won't even go into the, the specific details, but um, I attempted suicide and thankfully... Um, Thankfully, I didn't succeed, uh, but I was then um, taken off to uh, to a, a mental hospital for five days, and that is a very strange experience. And it's it's strange to to say it, to say that I was involuntarily uh, committed. Like I didn't I didn't check myself in. Like the police took me there, and that is it's in it's it's in its own way it's embarrassing to say it's something that uh very few other people can say and certainly there's a stigma associated with it uh so much so that uh, many of you know that jen and i are, are attempting to are in the process of adoption it's a very long process um but part of it is is a home study and also um assessing your own uh mental history and so i had to tell them this i had to tell them that hey a few years ago i did this and i was and i was uh committed to a mental hospital and it's something that just stays with you and it's very frustrating and so um when i was in the hospital i cried a lot and the people that were in the hospital with me were other attempted suicides and a number of drug addicts and what's one thing that's interesting, and this is the only story that I'll tell, but um, during a group therapy session, whereupon we were often treated very much like children, um, but during a group therapy session, 
um, I was talking about the aspects of my life that were good, um, that I had just gotten back from a trip to Asia, that my wife and I had just uh, uh, bought a house, and that I was uh, currently getting my master's at uh, UCLA. And one of the other people in the group said, why on earth did you try to kill yourself? Um, and I said, because I don't feel like I deserve any of that. And I'll tell you, you have not, you've never seen a group of people nod their heads so vigorously. Everybody in that room absolutely understood what I was talking about, that whatever, whatever good is in their lives, they don't deserve. So they will turn back to drugs or try to kill themselves or whatever it is. And it was really interesting because in that situation, I really felt, I really felt connected with people. Um, and then it's worth noting that, um, there was a guy. So when you're in a situation like that, you get to know everybody pretty well. And then when someone leaves, cause everybody checked in at different times. Uh, and then when someone leaves, everyone hugs him or her, and then they go about their, their life. And there was a guy named Danny who uh, was there for drug reasons. And in fact, after he left the hospital, he was going to go spend 30 days in jail. That was part of his sentence. So certainly he was not leaving for, for greener pastures. He was leaving uh, to go to a much worse situation. But anyway, so we were all, uh, you know, he was, we were all hugging him and, and, uh, when he hugged me, he, he whispered in my ear, he said, you deserve it. And he didn't need to say that. And I, I really, I'm going to remember that my whole life, um, that a guy who was in, who was in a, a pretty rough situation still took the time to remember what I had said and try to encourage me knowing that maybe it wouldn't have worked but he still tried and I still, and I remember, I, I really appreciate that so much. I wish that I knew his last name. I wish that I could seek him out and tell him how much that meant to me. Um, but as I got out of the, out of the hospital, um, a lot of things had to be, uh, a lot of be, things had to be removed from my life, uh, including more than one lesson. So for the next several months, I mean, life was pretty rough. I, it's not like you stop being suicidal, uh, when you get out of a five day stay at a hospital, far from it, you're, you're, it's still there. And, uh, my therapist and I, and Jen, we all worked on a scale from one to 10, um, with 10, with, you know, one or zero, I guess, uh, being like, oh, you're not thinking about suicide at all. In fact, you're actually quite happy. And then 10 being you've done everything you can do now. It's just about waiting waiting for the pills to take effect, waiting for, you know, whatever. Um, and I would say around this time I was, I was hovering at about a seven and that's, that's a pretty rough place to be. And, and our Jen and I, you know, our marriage was not going well. I, I did graduate. I did get my master's during that time and I was looking for work. Um, but I still felt pretty alone and pretty worthless. And I was, I would, I never stopped believing in God, but I, I didn't really, turned to him very often. Uh, but you know what? Um, his grace was sufficient. 
the Bible elsewhere says that, you know, faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. And I guess my faith was about the size of a mustard seed. <laughs> that's about that's about all I could manage during this time. And as a result, um, God really did a lot of a lot of good for me. And he really started working within me. And don't get me wrong, I did a fair amount of work myself, and so did Jen. And I have a very specific memory that it was August of 2018, and Jen and I had had another argument. Um, I was still kind of in that space of not wanting to tell her things because I didn't want to burden her. And then finally, it just all came flooding out in one long conversation. Everything that I was afraid of, everything that I was thinking, everything I was feeling, it all came out. And even though she and I still had plenty of work to do, uh, everything, everything got better after that moment because I, I stopped isolating myself. Um, and, and I trusted her and I let her in, even though just like in words on bathroom walls, even though the voice in my head, which is not a literal voice, it's sort of a figurative voice, but um, the voice in my head was saying, don't do this. This will be the last straw for her. You are going to drive her away. But I did it anyway, and great things happened. And since then, God has, she and I can have continued to work on our marriage. Um, I've continued to work on myself, and I've been really trying to embrace the idea of God's grace and that it is sufficient for me to such an extent now that you know it's it's almost three years later and jen and i regularly acknowledge that our marriage is better than it has ever been not just at the time literally ever and and a lot of that has to do with communication and saying and in my case saying what i'm thinking even if I'm scared to do so, even if that voice is saying she won't care, she'll only resent you. And that voice is still there. It's a little bit more faint, uh, but it is still there. Um, but the impact of all of this, of, of bringing people into my life, uh, bringing people into my own pain when I was afraid of scaring them off, um, that has really resulted in me not feeling alone, but feeling very supported and you know these days to go back to that suicide scale I, I think it's it's very safe to say that i'm hovering around a one or a two i don't remember the last time i went over five and that's that's crazy considering that three years ago um i was at a, i was always at a seven or an eight um and it just speaks to the importance of sharing the burden with other people and trying to rely on God, talking to God, screaming out to God for him to heal you, um, or at the very least, just to comfort you. And so I wanted to say that because, as I mentioned, in the Christian community, less, less so than it used to be, but there is still a stigma to talking about mental illness, to antidepressants or any kind of medication. And... I just wanted to uh, encourage those of you who might be struggling uh, and maybe keeping it to yourself that don't do that. That find find somebody that you 
you maybe you don't trust anybody, but find somebody that you kind of sort of trust and reach out to them, let them know what you're dealing with and, and let them deal with the weight of that. And they may not handle it great. And that, that, that's unfortunate if that happens, but just know that they still love you. Um, and they still care very much about you. And if nothing else, God cares about you and he cares very much about your suffering. He does not dismiss it. Um, there's a wonderful scene. This is a bit of a spoiler for words on bathroom walls. There's a wonderful scene towards the end. Once Adam has been, he himself has been committed to the hospital and, uh, father Patrick, the Andy Garcia character, he comes to visit him and he apologizes and he says, I had no, I had no idea what you were actually dealing with. I was kind of on autopilot saying the stuff that works for everybody else. And I didn't know what you were dealing with. And then he asks, can I pray with you? And Adam says, well, I don't really, I don't think I believe in God. And he says, well, that's okay. I will pray. And you just think about what you want in this life and think about who you are and think about the ways in which you've been supported. And Adam goes along with that and they hold hands and, the, and, and Father Patrick starts praying. And that to me is such a wonderful depiction of, of God's love and God's patience and God's wisdom. Father Patrick in that moment is, is humble. He is not preaching and saying like, well, you need to believe in God. He's not even saying that. He is meeting Adam where he is and he's basically saying, I'm not going anywhere which incidentally happens to that line happens to be a, a recurring motif throughout the film. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, sometimes it's said as a threat. Sometimes it's said as a comfort. Um, but it's a really powerful scene and one that I really appreciated as a Christian and as somebody who, who deals with mental illness. And so, uh, I have yet another, uh, quote here by Sean, Shonda Pierce. Um, she says, I hit a place where I was thoroughly convinced that the world would be better off and especially my children would be better off without me. When I first started sharing that, I was a little embarrassed. And then the more you find out when you share your story with somebody, when you talk to your neighbor, you're shocked that they've been there too. And they've felt that way too. And these are great, wonderful Christian people. So either God is messing up or there really is something going on in the chemistry and in the finite bodies we are created to house until Jesus comes. And so that's the thing is you never know if you reach out to somebody and tell them what you're dealing with. Yes, they might say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, is there anything I can do? They may say, oh geez, man, you know, the Seinfeld idea of like, oh, good luck with all that. Or they might say, I deal with that too. I'm, I'm right there with you. And, you know, they say misery loves company, but I will say that it's not, it's not purely a function of that. It's the idea that when you, that like you think you are so alone and just the fact that there's one other person, specifically someone that you care about and cares about you. And that person is there with you. That can be absolutely invaluable. Um, so uh, one last Bible verse. This is Psalm 25, verses 16 through 21. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all of my sins. 
See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope, Lord, is in you. And so we talked about this uh, a few episodes ago, I think, when we were talking with Nathan, uh, the idea of God providing comfort. And it's something that I never for most of my life, I didn't really understand, you know, what does comfort look like, especially when you're in the midst of a really terrible time. And comfort might sometimes mean just a little bit of relief or the possibility of happiness or being able to laugh occasionally or connect with another person. And so if you're somebody who deals with mental illness, or if you know someone who deals with mental illness, uh, keep praying, keep praying that God would comfort them that and that they would you know continue or you would continue to do the work that you know and 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 treat what is what is what is wrong with you and i say wrong as if to say like you know they're the 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 illness um and pray that god will provide you some relief will provide you some level of comfort and in those moments you can know that he is there and that he is with you and that he is for you and that Unlike a lot of other people, God is able to see through the disease. Just like he is able to see through our sin and see who we really are, he is able to see through our mental illness. He's able to see through the anger and the paranoia and the self-focus. He's able to see through all that to the person that you really are and the person that he loves so, so much. And you know, it one thing that I really love is the fact, I mean, this is such a superficial thing, but the fact that the book, A Beautiful Mind, is even called that. Because John Nash was a schi- uh, what well, still is, is a schizophrenic, but he's also a brilliant mathematician. And the film is about these two things, that his mind houses both of these things. It could have been called a broken mind. It easily could have been called that. But instead it's called a beautiful mind because it's not about him being limited or even defined by his illness. It's about looking past that to who he really is and to see the beauty inside. And so all that is to say, um, and I hope I hope I didn't make any of you uncomfortable, um, as I was talking about my own experiences, but, um, I just wanted to, if you're someone who, who, who deals with mental illness, I just wanted to say that you are not alone in any, in so many ways. You're not alone because there are, there are many people who deal with the same thing you do. Obviously I'm one of them. Uh, you're not alone because there are people in your life that love you. It may not be immediately apparent who that is, and you may act, there may be a, a, a terrible voice in your head that is saying those people don't actually love you, um, but they, they do, and they're there. And then lastly, you know, being a Christian, I do believe that God exists and that he, is, he lives in us, um, and so he is aware of what's going on inside our head, and he grieves with us, and he works to soothe that anger to soothe that pain and to provide us with comfort and maybe hopefully bring us out of the the depths 
you know, and you don't get a lot deeper than I was a few years ago, but I'm, I'm out of that. And who's to say I won't fall back into it at some point. It's possible, but I'm so grateful that my friends and my wife and most of all, God did not give up on me. And so I will boast in my weakness. I will tell people about who I am and the things that I have dealt with because to do so is to also boast about what God has done for me and what he can do for you. Uh, and also this happens to be uh, suicide prevention month. I didn't know that when I, uh, decided to record this. So, uh, this times out uh, pretty well. So if you, you know, if you are in a situation where you're feeling pretty rough, um, and maybe you feel like you can't talk to your friends or relatives or whatever, um, I would recommend calling the, the suicide hotline. Um, I've talked to them before and they are extremely helpful and they can, they'll listen to you and they'll ask questions and just really engage with you. So if you genuinely do feel like there's no one you can talk to, I would, uh, I would, uh, advise you to call, uh, 800-273-8255. Um, that's of course, if you live in the U S, um, if you live elsewhere, I'm not sure, but, uh, but you can look it up pretty easily. So, uh, again, it's 800-273-8255. Um, I would really recommend that, uh, that you call them. It can be very, uh, very helpful. So, uh, we'll go ahead and leave it there. Very heavy stuff. If you have the opportunity to see words on bathroom walls, I would say check it out in a safe way, obviously, um, if it is only available in theaters and that's the only way you can see it. Uh, exercise caution, exercise good judgment. Um, I certainly don't want anybody getting sick because they're uh, in a movie theater on my recommendation. So, um, so obviously use your best judgment, um, but it is a really good movie. Uh, so uh, do check it out at some point. Uh, in the meantime, if if any of uh, what I said here uh, has resonated with you, you're welcome to email me, tyleratmorethanonelesson.com, or you can post a comment uh, below at morethanonelesson.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, at uh, morelessons, and you can, like the, uh, you can like the show on Facebook as well. So thank you, everybody, so much for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye.